Welcome to another episode of the AABIP podcast. I am honored to be in the presence of our expert for today's discussion, Russell Miller. Dr. Miller is an assistant professor of medicine at the University of California at San Diego and the Uniform Services University of Health Sciences. He is also the department head of pulmonary critical care and the director of interventional pulmonology at the Naval Medical Center, San Diego. Russ, thank you so much for joining me on the AABIP podcast. I really appreciate you having me here. And congratulations on your recent AABIP guideline document on the management of indwelling pleural catheters. Thank you. It was, a, it was a lot of work, but I think we produced a good product in the end. Absolutely, a great product. And uh, the topic we're going to discuss today, IPC-related infections, is something that has been addressed to some degree in your document. So before we get started, uh, Russ, do you have any conflicts of interest to disclose? I have none. All right, let's begin then. So IPC-related infections could manifest as one-off or a combination of exit site, catheter tract, or pleural space infections. So let's say you have a patient with an IPC, and that patient is noted to have an exit site infection. The exit site is red, tender, there is some discharge. The tract is not tender. The fluid being drained looks no different than previous. So what's your approach to this, Russ? How do you manage a patient that you think has an exit site infection? So I guess I'll start off my answer by defining an exit site infection. So well, there's, we have our exit site infections, tunnel tract, and pleural space. We also have cellulitis. But for an exit site infection, it's going to be uh, purulent drainage at the catheter epidural interface. And you can have induration and erythema of the catheter tract, but really it needs to be defined uh, within two centimeters of the exit site. Now, the definition of two centimeters, that comes from the PD literature, but in reality, it's about the, about the cuff. So anything that is proximal to the, to the cuff um, is going to be an exit site infection. Anything distal to the cuff is going to be considered a tunnel tract infection. For exit site infections, really the antibiotic choice is going to typically be an oral agent that covers skin floor, like Staph aureus, beta extract, or the corniform uh, bacteria. Um, I typically will treat somebody as if they have MRSA because we have a high prevalence MRSA area with something like septra or uh, tetracycline like doxy or minnow. If you have a low prevalence of MRSA, it's not unreasonable to use things like dicoxacillin, uh, cephalexin, augmentin, or clindamycin. As far as the length, um, nobody knows, but it's probably somewhere in the range of 5 to 14 days, and I usually treat a patient for about 7. Okay, perfect. So uh, just to clarify the 2 centimeter, you, you, so if the cuff is at the exit site, as it's supposed to be, <laughs> Uh, so if the area around the cuff looks indurated, that's okay. You still call that an exit site infection. You won't call that right. a tract infection. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I keep my cuff very close to the, to the exit site as well. Um, cuff's probably about a centimeter, but two centimeters is easier because sometimes it's sort of hard to, to know for sure where that cuff is, especially when there's a lot of erythema with an infection. But yeah, the cuff is really the cutoff. Okay. So in what situation do you suspect a pleural space infection? Okay, so suspecting a pleural space infection is sort of hard because it's difficult to really know based on anything biochemical whether you have a pleural space infection. Typically, if you have an infection, as we know, you're going to have a low pH, a high 
LDH, a high protein. But those are exactly what you're going to find with a malignant pleural effusion. So you really have to make it clinically. And clinically, it's going to be somebody that has fevers, evidence of systemic illness, and you don't have a better source. Um, if they have had a change in the color or the or the of the fluid, that's always going to be a good indicator. And obviously, if they have pus, I have pus coming out. But in general, it's going to be mostly a clinical diagnosis where you don't have a better source and they have symptoms that could be consistent. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's say you suspect someone has a pleural space infection. How do you go about identifying the causative bacteria? Do you drain the IPC and send the fluid for culture, or do you rely on a fresh stick, a neutrosynthesis? That's a great question. And to be honest, when we were putting our guidelines together, this was probably the most contentious issue. And it's interesting because there's no data, but people had very strong opinions. You had your prothoric group and you had your pro pro, uh, catheter group. So obviously the people that drain by Thora are saying that, hey, there's a risk of getting contaminants if you drain to the tube, tube, which is absolutely reasonable. Um, But the people that say just drain to the tube cite a few studies that show that the bacteria that that produces biofilms is usually the same bacteria that's going to cause the infection. So if you're not using the or the drainage from the IPC as a point of making the diagnosis. I personally um, now have started to think it's okay to drain through the through the um, through the tube. And I used to be in the in the strong heavy uh, strong thoric camp. Okay, so draining through the IPC is okay, and usually the same bacteria that causes the biofilm or the contaminant is usually the one that actually infects the space. Right. And just to clarify, this is in the setting of a suspected infection. So if the mm-hmm. ER drains from the, from the tube and sends it for culture and it comes back with growth and there's no reason to suspect infection, that's worthless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the challenge comes up in cirrhotic patients where we have spontaneous bacterial pleuritis, which, you know, may be a colonized bacteria that we're draining exactly. from the space. All right, so so you suspect a pleural space infection. Do all your patients with pleural space infections get IV antibiotics and continuous drainage? All of my patients do get continuous uh, drainage, but they don't always get IV antibiotics. So one of the big things to think about when with a um, IPC-related pleural space infection is that it behaves a lot differently than your paramnemonic effusions. The big, the big point is that the mortality and morbi- morbidity is a lot lower. So if you took a match patient for age and um, health status with a paranemonic effusion and you put them into that rapid score, you're going to get mortality rates that are upwards of 20% and greater. But in the IPC literature, most uh, of infections, with, most of the infections are have a mortality range in about 2 to 6%, which allows you to be a little bit more liberal with your tre- treatment. So I, if a patient is clinically very sick, they're going to be admitted to the hospital for IV antibiotics. However, if they look like they could be treated as an outpatient, I'm going to try to treat them as an outpatient. Um, as far as what I'm going to treat them with, um, just like the mortality is different, the um, causative organisms are also a lot different. So, you know, in a paranemonic effusion, organisms like strep pneumo and and anaerobic bacteria are going to be high on your list, where for IPC infections, it's usually going to be things like staph aureus or gram negative like pseudomonas, Mm -hmm. and anaerobic infections are pretty uncommon. Um, The only problem with that is that 
it can be really is that patients with IPCs can also get pneumonia and can get paranemonic infections. And when there's tumor that is near the near the pleural space, it can be very difficult to tell does that patient have a pneumonia or not. So if I'm going to treat somebody as an outpatient, I'm usually going to start with something broad like uh, cefnivir, unless I have culture data to guide me in one direction or another. For the inpatients, if it's a parano if it's a uh, IPC infection, I don't really think that there's any chance that they have pneumonia. I'm going to use something like vancomycin or vancomycin up front. Mm -hmm. And if I'm not quite sure if they have a paranormal infusion, I'll probably use vancomycin or Miro to cover for anaerobes. Now. I strongly believe in, in uh, continuous drainage because that's all we know. Obviously that people are moving forward and saying maybe we can drain daily, but good management of any type of infection is gonna be complete drainage. But you, this really doesn't have to happen as an inpatient. There's a lot of options to do continuous drainage in an outpatient. You can use the digital chest tube systems like the Topaz, which I really like, or mini atriums, or even just a simple leg bag to allow you to, t to treat the infection with continued drainage as an outpatient. Okay, perfect. So uh, you do continuous drainage and uh, you find out that your fusion or your IPC-related empyema is not draining well. Now, we expect a lot of these patients who get IPCs to be poor surgical candidates for VATs. So when administering TPA and DNAs in these patients with non-draining infected spaces, do you give consideration to the color of initial pleural fluid? Uh, for example, would you give TPA to someone with a malignant pleural effusion that has previously been sanguinous and now the space is infected and not draining? So I'm not aware of any data that shows that you're either the color of the effusion is going to change the risk of having uh, pleural hemorrhage. And malignant effusions are often bloody. Um, what I'm more concerned about is if they have a coagulopathy. So it doesn't matter to me what the color of the effusion is, but obviously if they have a co coagulopathy, their chances of bleeding is going to be higher. The problem is we don't actually know what level of a coagulopathy would increase somebody's risk of bleeding. For me personally, I'd probably be a little apprehensive if platelets were less than 50 or an INR was greater than like 1.5 or 1.7, but there's really no data to support this. So it's going to be clinical judgment. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Yep. You also mentioned that in your paper, I think there are only six patients uh, in a subgroup of a retrospective study that truly got TPA and DNAs for yeah. uh, IPC related pleural space infections. Exactly. This is purely extrapolated from the MIST-2 data. And mm -hmm. there, hopefully, in fact, I'm pretty sure there's going to be a, a study coming out of uh, of using the same protocol for IPCs. But I have no idea what the results are gonna be. All right, so how do you manage tunnel tract infections differently? This is uh, a really good question. So for our guidelines, we leaned a lot on the PD literature because there's really not very much direct evidence um, when it comes to IVCs. And we think for a skin soft tissue infection type thing and tunnel tract is probably a pretty similar thing. So for an isolated tunnel tract infection, I would treat it the same as an exocyte infection, but for a longer period, maybe like 21 days. However, if you have a simultaneous tunnel uh, tract infection with a pleural space infection, that's a much different beast because it means that there's likely some type of communication along the catheter tract that's allowing infection to exceed from the tunnel tract into the pleural space. 
In the PD literature, um, this is an indication to pull the catheter. So if you have both, you pull the catheter, with the one exception being um, coagulative staph, where people uh, seem to have a relatively decent chance of salvage. Um, I think that this is reasonable to follow. And if I have somebody that has a concomitant infection, I'm going to pull the catheter. The other situation where I'd pull the catheter is if the tunnel tract infection is persistent over a couple of weeks because you run the risk of developing that, that communication with the pleural space. So if you're unable to treat it or if it has associated uh, pleural space infection, I'm going to pull it. Otherwise, I'm just going to treat it like a soft tissue infection, but for a longer period of time. Perfect. That answered my next question too. So I'll hop on to the question after. Do you use ultrasound to better diagnose these tunnel tract infections? I've started to. So um, my partner at UCSD, George Chang, wrote a really nice article about this. And what you're looking for is going to be um, a area of a collection of fluid outside of the catheter, which will be seen as sort of a hypoechoic area surrounding the hyperechoic catheter. The reason I think this is nice is, again, it can be difficult to tell when there's associated erythema and also to tell really how deep the infection goes. And also, if you is going to be for comparison to know if you did have an effect with treatment. So you ultrasound, you treat, and then you can look at it again two weeks later and decide if you're going to need to pull it or if they seem like they're responding. So it's something I've just started to do, but I like it. So based on ultrasound, if I see fluid around the cuff, do I call that a tunnel tract infection or an exit site infection? If you see fluid around the cuff, I'd call that a tunnel tract infection because it's sort of, it has it has broke the barrier between that the cuff is supposed to be preventing infection from seeding to. And when do we see all these infections, Aras? Like, do we see them soon after catheter placement or are these infections common weeks or months later? So, depends on the infection. The, um, the exit site infections um, are going to be something that occurs relatively early as, as well as um, skin soft tissue, things like cellulitis. But the, um, but the, Plural space infections are often going to be something that occurs later on in therapy. You know, like any medical device, the longer it's in, the higher the rate you have of having an infection. And it's not really much different in here uh, with this either. We know some people do this. Do you see any role of prophylactic antibiotics when you're placing the catheter? I do not. I know that there was one study where they showed that they had a decreased rate of infection by using a uh, sterile gowns and preoperative antibiotics. Um, but their infection rate going into it was really high. Um, I haven't found any compelling evidence to support it. All right, perfect. This has been fantastic, Russ. Thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, thanks for having me. Perfect. And with that, I'd like to thank the listeners for listening in. Please do check out our AABIP YouTube channel where you can find other episodes like this and other free AABIP educational videos. I have learned a lot from Dr. Miller's wisdom today, and I hope you all have enjoyed listening to this discussion. Take care. Thank you.